John chapter 12, verse 12. The next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. And Andrew and Philip went, sorry, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Here ends the Gospel reading. Well, we've just prayed in that song that God would speak to us from his word this morning. So please do have a seat and turn to John chapter 12, verse 12 on page 899 of the Bibles. And as you're finding that, let me begin by asking you one or two questions. Who is your king? In other words, who or what rules your life? Who do you worship? Perhaps in reality, it's yourself. And your answer does matter, as we'll see. For some, it's sports people. In 1982, Kevin Keegan, the footballer who became King Kevin to Newcastle fans, sensationally arrived at St. James's Park to spark Newcastle's eventual promotion back to the top flight after an absence of six seasons. In 1992, with the Magpies again in crisis and on the brink of relegation to what is now League One, King Kevin returned as rookie manager to save them from the drop, then oversee their dramatic resurgence as the entertainers challenged at the top of the premiership in dashing style. 
though glory just evaded them. Then, out of the blue, a decade ago, the so-called king was back. But his mission to bring back the almost glory times ended in failure. Let down, some say, by Mike Ashley. But then everybody tends to make that excuse. (laughs) Often we make people into kings who simply can't deliver. Here in John chapter 12, the true king, the one who deserves our worship as our rightful king, King Jesus, is coming to save people from a different kind of drop, from sin and death. It begins with a huge welcome of King Jesus as king. Hopes of glory were high, just as they were when King Kev returned. Yet as Ashley did with King Kev, the crowds turned against Jesus. And it looked like Jesus' mission had failed when he was crucified. But no. In fact, Jesus' crucifixion, though terrible, was part of the glory and the mission succeeding. The perfect Lamb of God, as John puts it, who takes away the sin of the world, is about to enter Jerusalem as the servant king on his way to die for you and for me. At the time of the Passover feast, when the Jews remember the sparing of their households by the blood of a lamb. You can sense the tension rising here in John's gospel. It's very, very dramatic. Back in chapter 11, verse 45, Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And many Jews genuinely put their faith in Jesus as their king. But verse 46 of chapter 11, some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. The religious leaders were panicking. They were fearing for their own future. What are we to do, they said. If we let Jesus go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will take everything. Then God enabled Caiaphas, the high priest, to say this in verses 49 to 52 of chapter 11. You know nothing. You don't understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. Of course, his words were true in a way Caiaphas couldn't even imagine. The truth was that Jesus' death would be for the nation and beyond by taking away the sin of those who believe in him, making it possible for them to enter God's kingdom. Whereas Caiaphas believed Jesus' death would remove political trouble and maintain peace with the Romans. And so in that way, be for the nation. So verse 53, from that day on, they made plans to put Jesus to death. Yet still many Jews were going over to Jesus and putting their faith in him because of his raising of Lazarus. That's chapter 12, verse 11. 
It's very dramatic. And so to verses 12 to 19 of chapter 12 and the triumphal entry into Jerusalem. You see, at Passover, over two million people gathered in Jerusalem. This great crowd, fueled by reports of the raising of Lazarus, heard that Jesus was coming. And so, verse 13, they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. The palms and the shouts of Hosanna both betrayed their nationalistic understanding of Jesus' kingship. Palms had been a symbol of the Jewish state and appeared on Jewish coins during their struggle against the Romans. The cry Hosanna literally means, save us now. They were looking for him to deliver them from the Romans. And if he could deliver Lazarus from the dead, then surely he had the power to do it. Jesus, though, came not on a war horse, but humbly on a donkey. And if we're to see this church grow, and God's kingdom extended in this part of the world, then under God, our attitude is to be the same. It can't be done in the way of the world. It can't be done in a triumphalistic way. Jesus came humbly to defeat not the Romans, but the power of sin and death which are far deadlier. As Zechariah had prophesied, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. He's the king of Israel, who will proclaim peace to the nations, and whose rule will extend to the ends of the earth. So his kingship is non-military. He'll be crowned upon a cross, of sacrifice, through which he'll achieve freedom for his trusting worldwide subjects. He's the king of peace, through whom we can have peace with God. But to achieve that, he must ride on in lowly pomp to die. But the kingdom, the kingship, Jesus declares on Palm Sunday, is also very divisive. Some will greet him with enthusiasm, while others will plot his death. And that's not surprising in a world where a rival power holds sway. You see, the coming of the true king produces the conflict of the kingdoms. Light confronts darkness. And life encounters death and means that we face death, at least death to self, before we can know life. Yet many resist giving up their sinful independence, don't they? Thinking it's just too costly. But each person must take sides. Doing nothing is siding against Jesus. 
Each of us must respond to the king one way or the other. To the universal king who will one day be acclaimed upon his throne in heaven as the one who with his blood purchased people for God from every tribe, language, people, and nation. From Benwell to Iran. And that great multitude of believers will stand before the throne and in front of the Lamb, holding palm branches, hailing not a political Messiah, but a Savior from sin. So the question this morning is, so how do you greet Him? As your Savior and King? Whose side are you on? The side of light or the side of darkness? Perhaps some of us are like the Greeks in verse 20 who want to see Jesus. You're searching and want to find out more. And up to now, like these Greeks, you've been a God-fearer, so to speak, attracted to the Christian faith by its morals, but you're not sure about putting your trust in Christ and going His way, the way of the cross. Or you're a believer, but you're struggling with going His way. Well, consider Jesus. Look at what He went through. It is worth it. Or maybe you like the disciples in verse 16 who didn't understand Jesus' purpose. It was to take Jesus being glorified through his death and resurrection for them to see the light. Do you see it? Which brings us to my second point. Glory through the cross. The approach of these Greek non-Jews who stand for the world that has gone after Jesus in verse 19 brings it home to Jesus that he was now to die for the world. Verse 23, the hour has come. When uh, President John F. Kennedy made a very different triumphal entry into Dallas, Texas 55 years ago, riding on a vehicle with massive horsepower. He didn't know he was about to die. The crowds were cheering and waving their stars and stripes, and he was waving back until that fatal gunshot. But Jesus knew that he was about to die. Despite the praise that he'd been receiving, He knew the crowd would soon be shouting, crucify him, and that he must die. Kennedy's death was tragic. But Jesus' death was not to be a tragedy, rather a triumph. Verse 23 again, the hour has come for the Son of Man, for Jesus, to be glorified by going the way of the cross, by his supreme act of obedience to death, Jesus brings final glory to the Father. And as he does so, the Father will also crown him with glory. So Jesus being glorified, 
Jesus achieving his purpose is through death. He's like a grain of wheat, verse 24, which must fall into the earth and die before he can become fruitful in terms of revealing the glory of God and making the kingdom of God available for the whole world. Jesus would have to endure the suffering before the glory, the cross before the crown, the burden of bearing all our sins, all our wrongdoing and rebelling in his body on the tree, the agony of being separated from his father, the cruel nails hammered through his wrists and ankles, crucifixion between two common criminals lifted high on a wooden cross. In his death, he must take our place. He must die our death to free us from death forever. And all that after being betrayed, denied, and deserted, even by his own disciples. Mocked and condemned by the religious leaders and the crowd, who'd, who'd only just been hailing him with palms. Jesus was willing because he wanted to obey and glorify his Father and achieve his Father's purposes for him and for us. Even so, no wonder his heart was troubled at what he's about to face, verse 27. He even considered asking his Father to save him from this hour. But no, he knew that it was for this hour for this death that he had come. Father, he prays, glorify your name. And surely for us too, there can be no other prayer. The gospel may be simple, but it's not superficial. It may be free, but it's not cheap. Jesus knew that he couldn't bypass the cross. Can we pass it by? So although the glory of God is also revealed in the resurrection, the essence of God being glorified and therefore of Jesus being glorified lies in the cross itself. And so in our worship, we mustn't focus almost exclusively on the risen and ascended Christ and upon the Spirit, but also on the cross of Christ. So thirdly, life through death. You see, that the glory of God is attained through death is true not only for Jesus, but also for us, for his disciples. To receive eternal life, Jesus says, that we must hate life in this world. Verse 25. That's not to say we should go around hating ourselves or that we must never enjoy the goodness of God's creation. No. Please don't misunderstand this. But faith in Jesus does involve dying to all the sinful attractions of this passing world order. Jesus says that without turning from sin and trusting in him, there can be no salvation. Those who love or cling to their lives in this world will lose them. But if we turn to and trust in Jesus, willing to lose our lives for the sake of Christ, then we'll keep them for eternal life. 
The cost is worth it. And verse 26, we'll have the presence of Christ on the way beside us, as well as the promise of being honored by the Father here and hereafter. So are you clinging on to life in this world? Or are you willing to lose your life for Jesus and for the glory of God? This life through death principle also applies to our Christian service. Fruitfulness for God is costly. It cost Jesus his life on the cross. And likewise, it's in dying that we become life givers. And we're to learn to die every day. To die to self. To bury our own selfish desires. The seed must perish for the harvest of Benwell and West Tyneside to be produced. One day God may well call St. Joseph's to plant a church. While the death of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Church growth and church planting are costly. Which brings us, fourthly, to the meaning of the cross. In verses 30 to 32, Jesus tells us that his death on the cross will achieve four things. A, verse 31, Jesus' death on the cross will pass judgment on the world in two ways. One, it will expose our sin, the rejection of God, most dreadfully shown in the rejection and murder of God's only Son. And every one of us comes under that judgment. But two, Jesus bears the judgment for us on the cross. He took our place. He took our punishment, which is death. He did the work for us. Through his death and resurrection, Christ takes the sting of death away for us through faith in him. What a glorious and victorious death and resurrection. B, verse 31, Jesus' death on the cross will drive out Satan, the prince of this world. You see, although the cross looks like defeat for Jesus and the triumph for the devil, it was in fact Satan's defeat. Yes, Satan's still active, but the cross has broken the evil one. And when Jesus returns, the Bible tells us that Satan will be hurled down Overcome by the blood of the Lamb. Revelation chapter 12 verse 10. And the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. The victory has been won. Jesus is king. See verse 32. Jesus' death will exalt him. He's lifted up in crucifixion, verse 33. But on the cross he's also lifted up in exaltation. The cross is a throne. His crucifixion is his coronation. He reigns from the cross. His being glorified isn't a reward for his crucifixion. It's an inseparable part of it. D, verse 32, the death of Christ will draw all peoples to himself, whatever their nationality, ethnic background or status, such as the Greeks. He's the savior of the world. 
the harvest will be great. But first, the grain of wheat must fall into the ground and perish. But in perishing, he will bring about much fruit. So finally, and fifthly, put your trust in the light. The response of the crowd in verse 34 was typical of some Jews and Gentiles then and today. They ask, how can Jesus be God's king if he's to be lifted up on a cross? Doesn't that mean he's lost? Doesn't the Old Testament teach that true Christ will remain forever? Won't he establish an unending kingdom? How can we believe in a crucified king? They were struggling to square what Jesus has already said, that the kingdom he brings is eternal, and that the life he offers is eternal, with his talk of death. But for these to be made available, the devil, Satan, must be confronted and his enslaving hold on the human heart be broken through the final and perfect obedience of Jesus. You see, the guilt of the ages, the guilt of human beings, can't be just swept under the carpet, but must be drawn out into the light and judged. Jesus must die to reign forever. The message of the cross is a stumbling block and foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. And many still find it difficult to believe that only through a blood-stained cross can the meaning of existence be discovered and the life for which we were made experienced in all its fullness. When Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ movie came out, one cynical reviewer said, You have to see it, poor you. But despair not. Help is on the way in the form of the re-release of Monty Python's Life of Brian. He's not the Messiah. He's a very naughty boy. Ah, the reviewer said, that's better. What a terrible response in reality. But what's your response? Is someone here today ready to put their trust in Jesus as Savior and King? Willing to follow Him whatever the cost? He's your rightful King. And He says to you, verse 36, put your trust in Him before it's too late. He's the light who's come into the world. And if you put your trust in Him, you'll become sons of light. But the opportunity, Jesus says, is just a little while longer. Put your trust in the light in me, says Jesus, before you die or before I return as judge, whichever is first. The alternative is solemn. To refuse to trust in him means to be shut out of the light forever. Richard Vermbrandt, a Romanian pastor who visited our partner church in Jesmond a while ago, was imprisoned along with his wife for his faith by the communists. Their nine-year-old boy was taken from them and indoctrinated in communism 
and atheism. He was in darkness. As a method of psychological torture, the boy was brought to see his mother to denounce the Christian faith to her face. But she was in the light. And he could see that despite all her suffering, that there was joy in her heart. And one day her son said, Mom, if Jesus means this much to you, I want him to. Who today wants him to. To come out of darkness and into the light. And if you've already become sons of light, then pray for and plead lovingly with those who haven't to do so while there's still time. And are you showing like that boy's mother, how much Jesus really means to you as your Savior and your King. King Jesus is coming again. His resurrection proves it. And unlike Kevin Keegan's return in 2008, it won't end in failure, but in glory. Let's pray together. And let's just be quiet for a moment as we respond to Jesus, what he's done for us, what he's going to do. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer.